I'll be the first to tell you that nobody can predict the future, but I do believe that some of us can create it. And you can only do that if you have meaningful, purposeful conversations about what sort of future is most beneficial to you or your organization. Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, and in this edition, we're joined by one of the world's leading futurists, Cheryl Connolly from the Ford Motor Company. You may have seen one of her TED Talks on YouTube. We discuss seven global trends and how they're affecting the heavy equipment industry, as well as the need for a futurist mindset as members contemplate AEM's 125th anniversary and what the future might hold. Plus, Cheryl tells us about the training and qualifications it takes to be a futurist, and her answers might surprise you. But that's what we aim to do here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, where each month we explore a new subject area to help keep your business on the cutting edge of the heavy equipment industry. To help us do that, make sure that you're subscribed to our podcast feed so you get an update every time there's a new episode. We're always working to keep it fresh here on the podcast as well, and we'd really appreciate your feedback. You can post a comment, rate us, or leave us a review in whatever your favorite podcasting app is. I can tell you personally that we do read every bit of feedback you give. So, on with the show. As AEM celebrates its 125th anniversary this year, we celebrate the rich history of an industry that's never stopped evolving. But we also look forward to the next 125 years and what the future holds for equipment manufacturers. And as part of that process, the AEM members who attend this year's annual conference, November 18th through 20th, will be treated to a presentation by one of the world's most well-known experts in future trends and technology. Cheryl Connolly holds the title of Chief Futurist at the Ford Motor Company and publishes the annual Looking Further with Ford Trends Report. For more than 20 years, she's been tasked with helping company executives prepare for what's on that third horizon, and her TED Talks have been viewed and shared the world over. Ford futurist Cheryl Connolly, thanks so much for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Thanks for having me, Dusty. So, Cheryl, I want to dive into the insights from your latest report and talk about the future of construction and agriculture in a moment. But first, futurist is not a title that you find in a lot of corporate org charts or in the want ads. What does the job entail and how do you do it? So the answer might surprise you. The way that I see my role as a futurist is to actually remind people that no one can predict the future. And yet everyone does it. People who get married, they assume it'll be for a lifetime. You make an investment, you assume it'll play off in the long run. And companies or organizations, institutions, they often tend to believe that the thing that once made them successful will guarantee their success going forward. And my job is to challenge those notions, ask people to think through the consequences if their plans don't turn out, if the environment isn't ready to receive the plan that they have in store. What are the underlying assumptions? What needs to happen for their plan to work? And if those things don't happen, what happens to their plan? My goal is never to prove anyone wrong. It's asking them simply to think through the consequences if their decisions are wrong. What's the scale of the impact? It's in a lot of ways, I feel like you're almost a professional devil's advocate and you don't see futurism as curriculum at a lot of universities or trade schools. So how do you get into that line of work? Uh, what makes you so uniquely qualified to do what you do? So it's funny that you said it, but I think that 
the title should be changed to Polite Contrarian. (laughs) We were talking about our Midwestern roots, and I think that anybody can be a contrarian, but you have to do it in a way that keeps you in the conversation, that people don't shut you out. This is a very unlikely career path that I find myself on, and I do feel that I'm extraordinarily lucky, but it's not a path that I would have ever foreseen. I grew up in Metro Detroit. I studied finance in undergrad. I went to law school because there were no jobs. And when I was in law school, I could see there were no jobs. So I got my MBA at the same time. So I had this bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a juris doctorate. And the very first job I landed was as a secretary. I did practice law for a short period of time. My standard answer is to say that I practiced long enough to know that I'd made a very expensive mistake. (laughs) But along the way, I met my husband in law school, and he doesn't practice either, so no regrets. But after having kind of practiced law for a short period of time, I wanted to see what the business world could offer. And so I wrote to Ford Motor Company with the hope that I might be considered for a position in their finance department. Instead, I got recruited for marketing, sales, and service, which meant that I found myself in the unlikely position of wholesaling cars to dealers. I'm not a car person and certainly never saw myself as a salesperson, but the dealers were really extraordinary. And I think as in most jobs, but particularly so in sales, it's really relationship-based and I enjoyed the people and they were so generous with their time, their expertise. They taught me everything I know about cars and the industry today. And I stayed on that path for a little while. And very unexpectedly found myself on the global trends and futuring team. I didn't even know the function existed. And I learned on the job what it took. And I realized that while I hadn't planned this future, the things I had done along the way had helped prepare me. The bachelor's in finance taught me the business fundamentals. The MBA taught me how to apply those theories. The law degree taught me how to do the research, which is really a fundamental part. And you have to be persuasive. It's important to be able to defend your point of view with some logic, with some documentation that's easy for people to follow, that's transparent. And then finally, I do rely on my sales experience, not in the typical way, but when you're going to ask somebody to think about an unknown, uncertain future that could play out in 5, 10, 20 years from now, you need to know whether they have an appetite for that type of conversation. And if they don't, then you have to redirect the conversation so you can still kind of have substantively the same conversation. And I always feel like I need to be able to read if that audience is buying what I'm selling. And so I'm grateful for my days wholesaling cars to dealers. It sounds like so many of the most interesting people that I've ever met in my life that you wound up being just a product of all the experiences and education that you had along the lines, plus a maybe a little healthy dollop of luck that uh, helped you land what seems like the perfect job for you at the end of the day. Absolutely. I, I tell people I feel like it was divine intervention. In fact, I used to tell people that I was the luckiest person in Ford Motor Company. I felt like I won the lottery. But then I stopped telling people that because everyone started asking me when I was going to rotate out of the job. When are you going to make room for somebody else? But I, I tell you all of that background because I humbly believe that if I can think like a futurist, anyone can think like a futurist. I mean, I've had the good fortune of doing only that for the last 15 plus years, but it is a skill I think anyone can acquire. Well, and that, if anything else, is the perfect transition into this year's annual trends report. Uh, You published Ford's seventh annual trends report earlier this year. And in the past, the report has taken a very broad approach to global trends that impact business and society. But this year, you narrowed the focus a bit and drilled down on this notion of behavioral change. Why focus on that topic at this time and what stood out to you? There was a very specific reason that that became that area of focus and it started the year before. 
So you're referring to the 2019 trend book and the 2018 trend book. There were two data points that I found very interesting. The first of which was we spoke to people in nine different countries and two thirds of those people said that they were overwhelmed by changes taking place in the world today. And I think initially we had some speculation. So if that was written in 2018, we had started the research in 2017 and there have been a lot of political upheaval, particularly in the U.S. And so you might have been inclined to think that that was a American phenomenon. But of course, Europe has Brexit, Shanghai had, had a really volatile stock market, India had been struggling with this re-modification policy, and Brazil continues to struggle. So the sentiment of being overwhelmed by changes taking place in the world actually resonated with people in ways that we never imagined. And I found that kind of sobering. The good news is, is that if two-thirds of the people we spoke to said that they were overwhelmed, three-quarters of the people we spoke to also said they still believed in an individual's ability to bring about positive change. And so that was the launching point for the 2019 trend book, because we really want to understand what were the underlying drivers of change? How did people respond to change? Did it excite them? Did it bring them hope? Was it caused by fear? And what we realized is that change is obviously very, very complicated. It means different things to different people. More people say that it's driven by hope than fear, but some people still say that it makes them very uncomfortable. A large percentage of people said that it still made them uncomfortable. This year's report included a a worldwide survey as well. Um, Can you real quick explain your methodology a bit on that? So we went to 14 different countries. We do at least a thousand online surveys in each market, except in this case, I think we split two markets. I think the UAE was split with another market. But we do that just to get a sample. Now, it's interesting. We don't use surveys to figure out the trends. What we do is we have a point of view. Here are the trends that we think are interesting. Here's something to watch. So I I think some of the things that really called out in this year's trend was like the digital detox. You know, more and more people saying that they're looking for ways to disconnect, that they think mandatory timeouts would be a good thing. And even how people navigate social media. And so we have these points of view going in, and then we try to test them. And what we're looking for is to see what markets have the greatest disparity. Like, Where do you see numbers higher or lower? And can we figure out why? Well, diving into these seven bulleted takeaways then, and, and there's more than seven, but there were these seven main points that stuck with me. Firstly, there's what you refer to as the tech divide between people who see technology as a force for good in the world and those who don't. Now, I'm as much a fan of Black Mirror as anyone else. I love the show. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) But most of our popular entertainment portrays technology as this dangerous, scary thing. Is that how most people actually see it? I think that what people are, are seeing is that we have become extremely reliant on having ubiquitous digital mobile technology. And it has changed our lives in countless ways that have been improvements. But when we talk about the tech divide, what we were trying to explore was how people were starting to see unintended consequences, things that they hadn't realized. So not taking this on from a political standpoint, but I think a good example is those people that said, I love social media. It's a great way for me to stay in touch with my family and friends, particularly those that are geographically remote from where I am. But I hadn't realized along the way that I was reading articles that might not have come from an authentic source that might have had an agenda or a political leaning that was different than my own. 
and that I had unwittingly been exposed to this and nobody ever told me that that was going to be part of the deal. And do you see that play out as well in the way that people react to new technologies like autonomous vehicles? Because I know that that's a big one that we're seeing right now in agriculture and construction is the rollout of these new autonomous vehicles that work in farm fields or on construction sites. And the people building them might be really excited about it, but then you get actually out into the field and there's sort of this moment of hesitation where the contractors and farmers that buy these machines say, well, well, hang on a second. I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that this is something that I want yet. Yeah, and that's, that transcends all categories, all professions. Everyone's worried that automation and autonomous and the more extreme form of automation will create great unemployment. And I tend to find myself in the glass half full side. I, I'm more of an optimist than a pessimist. And there are those who say that we need not worry that what will happen is that machinery, the sophistication and technology will free us up of the mundane task and allow us to do higher order thinking or work or more meaningful contributions. I'd like to believe that's true. What I wonder, though, is that what if we talked about artificial intelligence as augmented intelligence so that it didn't suggest implicitly that it was going to replace us? that it was a substitute for us, but that it could actually make us better at what we do. And there are documented studies on this. I mean, doctors that work in the field of radiology can outperform a computer in terms of accuracy, because what ends up happening is that doctors have the nuanced experience of saying, well, that shadow really isn't anything to worry about, or they'll have this vast knowledge of saying that's something, you know, we're not going to have false positives here. But computers generally call out more false positives than a seasoned doctor would. But when you take an artificial intelligence system and pair it with an experienced radiologist, the performance of that radiologist goes up dramatically. And so I think as we think about these types of tools, we have to think about how we can look at them as collaborative opportunities. I've heard the point made before by other experts in the field that while artificial intelligence might be better than humans at crunching numbers, humans are still better at learning from the results of that number crunching, and that's why they work better as a team. And so I think you make a strong case for the carrot argument in technological adoption, but for AEM's members whose customers maybe aren't sold on the technology yet, there's also a stick to go with that carrot, right? It's a tough one because Moore's Law says that if they wait, the technology could get better and it could get cheaper. But sometimes the pace of technology is causing so much disruption that those who hesitate get left behind. As we continue through your 2019 trend report, the second big takeaway has to do with the influence of social media. And you alluded to this earlier, but there's this growing need to detox from that environment. In fact, you found that more than two thirds of adults globally think that there should be mandatory timeouts from their digital devices. Why is digital detox such a growing trend and what does it mean for manufacturers in this day and age? Well, the detox, I think, is interesting. And, you know, I think most people want to think about the detox in terms of social media. You know, particularly I have a parent of teenage daughters and they go, oh, you're spending way too much time on Instagram and other social platforms. I don't even think about it in that regard. I think about, you know, how commonplace it's become to multitask. Most of society has convinced themselves that in some way, shape, or form that they're effective at multitasking. But research suggests that only 2% of the world's population can successfully multitask. And it's little wonder because what happens is the brain cannot work on two complex things at the same time. And so it toggles back and forth and you lose great efficiency in your thought and analysis when you do that. I've heard it put this way. 
what happens when you multitask is that your brain loses its ability to separate the critical pieces of information from the background noise. And so in essence, what we do is we make decisions that are basically uninformed. I mean, the research that we endeavor to do goes in one ear and out the other. Like, even if it's not higher order things, people go, well, you can chew gum and walk at the same time. But there's research that says that if you and I were to drive, you know, start out at the same location and say that we're going to meet 100 miles away. And during that 100 mile drive, I talk to my best friend, my husband, and you talk to no one on the phone. Research shows that people who talk on the phone take longer to arrive at their destination than people who don't talk on the phone when they're driving. So there is some sort of impact on our efficiency. And so we see people changing the way they think about work. And even attention spans are shrinking. A couple of years ago, there was this really fun report that claimed human beings had a shorter attention span than goldfish. Humans have eight seconds, goldfish have nine seconds. What's even more alarming, though, is that almost 20 years ago, the average attention span for humans was 12 seconds. Not a very large number in either right, but to look at the dramatic decline and that some people believe that there is a potential correlation to smart devices. You know, 2000, we weren't dealing with all these digital devices that constantly kept us at the ready. And research suggests that being on call all the time can lead to great fatigue. It can create irritability anxiety, even depression. You know what I think we need to do to test to be sure? Hmm. Give the goldfish smartphones. See what happens. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. Point number three in your 2019 Ford Trends report is this idea of reclaiming control and self-improvement. What did your survey reveal about the attitudes in this space? So reclaiming control, I think, is an interesting one. I think that people are feeling like they need greater agency in their life in many different ways. And so we were looking at the tools, you know, in terms of self-improvement. There are so many that are driven apart by a growing set of tools that make it easier to achieve, track, and even set your goals. But I think it's also part that people don't like the way the world is changing around them. So they're taking back control for themselves. In our research, we found that 84% of the people we spoke to around the world said that They've done something in the last year, some sort of small step to improve their life. And of those, 92% said that they were still following through on those steps. I think that we, as a species, continue to try to find ways to improve and enrich our lives. And that's a really good feeling when you can take a concrete step towards self-improvement and then look back a, a year later and see that it's still working, that you're still improving in that way. And I think that one major facet that manufacturers should take note of here is the growing capability for employees to work remotely. And you mentioned that in your report too, the growing viability of technologies that let people collaborate across vast distances. How is that helping in this space? Well, it's funny that you talk about the trend book because the trend book, we work with a small boutique firm that does the graphics on it. And I do love the work that they do, but they're a very small team. And one of the team members exists in Australia and they work on it until the workday is almost over and they pass it off to somebody in China who works on it for their time frame and passes it on to somebody in Europe, who then passes the work on to somebody in New York, who then passes it on to somebody in California. So literally, this collaboration is taking place with five, maybe six people worldwide. 
but it's almost being worked on 24 hours a day. And so those things wouldn't happen without these types of tools that you're talking about. That's fascinating. We're talking with Cheryl Connolly, the chief futurist of Ford Motor Company. And for a very long time in the heavy equipment industry where AEM comes from, the people who buy and operate our members' heavy equipment have identified on a very personal level with the brands in our industry. I mean, get a farmer started talking about what brand of tractor he drives sometimes, and you'll still be sitting there two hours later. But according to point number four in your report, it seems like this is a growing trend with technology as well now. So what role is technology playing in shaping identity these days? Oh, so and identity is so complicated. When I was growing up, my mom was referred to as a housewife. You know, her mother might have been also called a housekeeper or a stay-at-home mom. And, but we usually only had one label for how we identified. But today, identity is so fluid and it's contextually based. I mean, I think of myself as wife, mother of two, soccer mom living out in the suburbs. And then at the office, I put on my chief futurist hat. And so it really is dependent on the context in which you're presenting yourself. But then add to the virtual world. Now put in the complexity of the social media element and how you choose to portray your lifestyle, your priorities, your values online. Identity becomes that much more complicated. Point number five in the report is one that it's also one of the trickiest ones to get nailed down. Work-life balance. What did you find there? I actually think that work-life balance is a little bit tricky. It was something that people have talked about for a very long time, and it seems to be the holy grail in terms of trying to actually achieve it. What I realized through our research is that the way we compartmentalize work has changed. And you add to that the race for talent. Companies are increasingly acknowledging that employees don't live to work. They work to live. And so how they approach their jobs are changing. And you see this even more so among the younger generations. So the average millennial who right now is aged between 24 and 38 years of age, it's expected that they won't stay with any one employer. Well, their average job tenure, rather, is 4.7 years. Now, I think about my father who worked for the same company for 38 years. And you take that, that total different paradigm shift. In fact, a young person who ever found themselves working at the same company for 30 years might actually feel shame, not pride, regret in having become so complacent that they stayed at the same place for so long. And of course, the benefit package doesn't incentivize them to stay. So they're really out to learn what they can and use as a stepping stone for something new and different. You mentioned the benefit package, and, and that's certainly something that a lot of AEM members are Taking a second look at in this day and age, and what are some of the new types of benefits that manufacturers are using to attract and retain that top talent? If you do some research and you look at it's Fortune Magazine's top 100 companies to work for, they always include some, what are the unusual benefits? And for years, things like Life Coach has shown up. Paid sabbaticals. Now, paid sabbaticals have historically been the domain of university professors under the Publisher Parish edict. So they take time off to write that book. But now we see people outside of academia taking these sabbaticals. And it's this notion that we all can benefit, and particularly in a marketplace that really values creativity and innovation. Sometimes you need to find that time to recharge, to refuel. So I believe Nike is one of those brands that does that. And anecdotally, I've heard stories about how Nike takes that time so seriously that if you choose to take your 
sabbatical, they shut off your access to email so that you really, really disconnect. That is incredible to me because like a lot of people, I think, in the modern working world, being that disconnected seems so impossible. In fact, the last time I didn't have access to email, I was 50 miles from the nearest road in a cabin without electricity or cell service in northern Ontario. And that was 12 years ago. That's how ubiquitous it's become. But getting back to the reasons for this push to attract and retain talent, what do you see as the factors that are prompting companies to have to get creative and offer these new benefits? What's driving the shortage of talent in the workforce? It it really kind of comes down to the basics of demographics. In the 1970s, the average fertility rate worldwide was five babies for every woman. Today, the number is 2.4. And the biggest driver for that is education. The more educated your population, the fewer babies the women tend to have. And so it's not surprising that if you go to some of the wealthiest countries, they're having fewer babies. They're below replenishment rate. They're not having enough babies to offset the deaths. And that means they don't have the workforce to fuel that economic engine. And that's where the race for talent comes in. They have a smaller pool, and then they also have to make sure that they're picking from the most competitive pool. Do you think we'd be having this same conversation if the unemployment rate were 8 or 9% instead of the historic lows that we see right now? Yes, because I think this is, a, this is a long game. It's going to take a while for this to play out. But if you, if you look at what's known as the dependency ratio, which measures how many workers are supporting your non-working population, we know that Japan will reach a future in the next couple of years, perhaps, where they actually have more retirees than workers. And when they find themselves in that deficit position, the economic fallout will be vast. They'll lose their sphere of influence and they'll migrate elsewhere. China and India are two obvious choices just because of their sheer size. But China is aging more rapidly than any other country in the world. And India is one of the youngest countries in the world. And these things are going to play out. They're going to have dividends. They're literally called demographic dividends and the impact it'll have on your economy. As long as we're on the subject of ubiquitous global trends, eco-momentum is the sixth big point in your report, and we see it paralleled in the heavy equipment industry as well. Not just the trend toward building cleaner machines, but more sustainable cities as well. So what did your research find about attitudes toward that? Well, it's interesting. I think consumers overwhelmingly agree that environmental progress will depend on human changing their behaviors. And despite this awareness, It doesn't always translate into action. And we're kind of curious as to why. Is it that it's too big a leap? People can't imagine the disruption or is a fear based on something that's so remote, it doesn't actually feel real. But we started to wonder what it would take to have people literally change their behavior. So for instance, we asked them, would you change what you ate if you thought it could help save the planet? And the majority of people we spoke to in 14 countries said yes. The country that agreed the highest degree was China. The country that agreed at the lowest level was the United States at 56%. So only you know, a little more than one out of two said that they would be willing to make that sacrifice. It's that American individualism at work. It is indeed that. Finally, there's the growing number of options that people have to choose from when it comes to transportation. Uh, And this last year, this was a big milestone for me, but I personally summoned an Uber for the first time. I think that means they're going to take away my millennial card. (laughs) 
But what did your survey find about the number of people exploring alternative forms of transportation? We've been talking about this for a really long time. Inside of Ford, and Bill Ford is the executive chair of our board. He is the great-grandson of Henry Ford. Back in 2011, he gave a speech that he said, I've begun to worry what happens if we continue to sell as many cars as possible. What he was really looking to was the gridlock that it was causing. I mean, places like Chennai and Beijing, New York and L.A. to a much lesser degree. But the gridlock is so great, there's very little joy in the drive, especially if you're just moving at a snail's pace. And so increasingly, we know customers prioritize their time and they want to make sure they can get from point A to point B. And sometimes a ride hailing service is just fine. Sometimes a scooter rental, even a bicycle rental. So what we're trying to do is make sure that we give people a spectrum of choices. Uh, We call it multimodal journey planning. So perhaps if you live in a place like Chicago, you drive your car to the train station, you pick up the train, you take the train into town, but then you still have that last mile to figure out how you want to get from the train to your final destination. Do you rent a scooter? Do you ride a bicycle? Do you hail a cab? Do you summon an Uber or a Lyft? I'm stating the obvious here, but Ford still primarily builds cars. And you'd think that the notion that people are evolving in their transportation habits would be a difficult subject, corporate speaking. But Ford put it right there in black and white in this report. What should we take away from that decision? I think you should take away from the fact that Ford is really willing to contemplate any service that they think will better meet the needs of the marketplace. So it's no longer just about sheet metal and how many cars you can get on the road. It's how can you move people? How can we be a provider of the movement of goods and the movement of people? And that's opened up a lot of doors to the way that we think. Because up until then, we thought of ourselves more as a manufacturer of automobiles. And now we see ourselves as a service provider. And that's changed the conversation completely. This move among manufacturers, from the role of product provider to service provider, is one that's being felt in the heavy equipment industry as well. AEM even conducted an executive workshop on the topic for its members last year. And with construction constituting such an important part of our industry, sweeping changes in transportation trends are also a big area of interest to AEM's members. So how are these trends going to change the way that we build roads and cities in the future? That's a really interesting area to explore. And as Ford embarks on this reshaping our value to the marketplace, we also rethink who our customers are. So instead of it just being the man or the woman sitting behind the wheel of an automobile, we now look to cities as our new customers. What are the goals for the city? What kind of quality of life are they trying to create? And how can we help facilitate that? How can we help them deliver that? So we know that as we move forward, we need much greater collaboration and integration. That's a really fascinating way to look at the problem. And I know that a shift in mindset like that in a company like Ford is tricky because Ford is a lot like many of AEM's member companies in a lot of ways. It's been making cars for more than a century, and many AEM members have that sort of history and organizational inertia as well. You also note in the report Ford's desire to take the lead in shaping the change that's on the horizon rather than hiding from it or fighting it. What lessons can and should the heavy equipment industry take away from that attitude? Well, you talked about the legacy and legacy is tricky because everyone talks about like legacy means that you have cost and infrastructure. But one of the things that I really enjoyed about this year's trend book was a question we posed, parents, would you rather your child ride in a self-driving vehicle than ride with a stranger? 
And two-thirds of the people we spoke to said they'd rather their kid be in a self-driving vehicle. And so there's something about the legacy of a brand that's been around for 100 years that people feel a connection to it that I think will play favorably for us, or at least we hope so, when we start moving into a space where you're bringing forth a lot of technology that's unprecedented, not yet tried and true. I would say this report easily falls under the purview of corporate intelligence. I mean, surveying 13,000 people worldwide is not a cheap undertaking. And yet every year for seven years, Ford publishes this report and makes it available to anyone who wants to read it. Why share it with the world? So it's funny, when I started doing this work 15 years ago, I was told that we could never discuss our work outside of Ford, that it was proprietary, top secret stuff, the kind of thing that if I told you, then I'd have to kill you sort of thing. Goodness. And over the years through restructuring, the team got disbanded and I was the only person left. And in that situation, I needed to turn to a lot of outside experts, have conversations with basically anyone who was willing to have one with me. And as it goes in so many things in life, I found that the more that I shared, the more I got back. I mean, quite literally, our research was better and our insights were richer. And so the kind of conversation you and I are having is a big part of it. Like I learn from you and you learn from me. And I think it's the beauty of the subjects that we put in there. They should be universal enough that anyone could pick them up and see if they can see the world through a slightly different lens. Well, I'm flattered to just be sitting here having this conversation with you. AEM, of course, is made up of more than a thousand heavy equipment manufacturers across North America. Some of its members have been in business for 125 years or longer. How could organizations like that benefit from having a futurist like you on their staff? I think that every organization needs a futurist, but I would tell you that they don't have to be called a futurist. I often find that people that work in the domain of strategy, product development, even market research or consumer insights often overlap with the types of things that I'm talking about. But here's the piece of advice that I ask your listeners to take away, is that the next time you're in a meeting and somebody says, that's not going to happen, not in my lifetime, not under this leadership, not over my dead body, pause there and ask, what would it look like if it did happen? Just because you don't think it's going to happen doesn't mean you shouldn't explore it. Because what we're trying to do is explore things that are plausible, not probable. And there's a vast difference there. In other companies that you're aware of that have considered hiring a futurist, what's the typical reaction when the idea is proposed? And how do you make the case to a corporate boardroom that you need someone on staff who is responsible for being devil's advocate like you are? Well, I think you turn to history and say that nobody has ever consistently or successfully predicted the future. It's almost a fool's errand. And then it goes back to what we said at the beginning. I don't just call myself a contrarian, I call myself a polite contrarian. Because you need to bring people along with you on the conversation. And my experience has been is that people actually really like talking about these things. They like kind of contemplating it. And I'll be the first to tell you that nobody can predict the future. But I do believe that some of us can create it. And you can only do that if you have meaningful, purposeful conversations about what sort of future is most beneficial to you or your organization. Well, last question here, Cheryl, then. When you address the AEM annual conference later this year, you're going to have as your audience some of the biggest influencers at some of the biggest manufacturers on the planet. What do you think that this audience needs to hear about the future, and what's your takeaway for them? My big takeaway is this. There are those who scoff. 
that are skeptical and, and I'm not pretending to be a psychic. I hope I present my information in a way that is inclusive and says anyone can do this, but I urge you to do it. However, you decide to take it on, because if you don't think about the long term, you're setting your organization up for a future of constraint over a future of choice. Well, I think those are wise words on which to end. Ford Futurist Cheryl Connolly, thanks for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. As I mentioned, Cheryl will be just one of the keynote speakers at the AEM annual conference November 18th through the 20th. We only just scratched the surface of the insights that she has to offer. Plus, there are many, many more fascinating speakers on the lineup. It's also the industry's premier networking event and a chance for you to enjoy banquets, recreation, and a gala all on Florida's fabulous Gulf Coast. The event is in Marco Island this year, just south of Fort Myers, and it's not too late to register. Go to aem.org annual to learn more. There are also still two of AEM's Thinking Forward educational and networking events left for you to attend this year. The first one, Case Studies on Using Artificial Intelligence to Enhance Business Outcomes, is coming up on October 22nd in Milwaukee. There's a special members-only workshop the day before that one on October 21st. Go to aem.org think to register. And mark your calendar for November 5th in St. Louis, where creating an innovative environment will be the topic of discussion at Bayer Crop Science. So that is going to wrap up this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. For more valuable industry insights, make sure you're signed up for the AEM Industry Advisor, our twice-weekly e-newsletter. Visit aem.org slash subscribe. If you need to get in touch with me, shoot me an email at podcast at aem.org. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses. PodCampMedia.com. Little Glass Men does the music for us. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.